evil exists, like pure, pure evil exists. And you don't need to, you know, scapegoat it on a, a community or say it's about mental illness. It's like racism and, and evil and violence is as unfortunately as American as apple pie. Hey guys, it's Daniela Gibbs-Leger and welcome back to another episode of Thinking Cap. That's right, I am alone once again. Ed is still up, gallivanting. Um, picked a good time to not be in the office. I have to say, these past couple of weeks have been super, super trying. Uh, obviously, we all know what happened this weekend. Um, we had a mass shooting in El Paso, went to sleep woke up to the news of another mass shooting in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, we're going to get into it and talk uh, to, to our guests today about what's been going on. Um, but I just have to say that my heart, you know, how many times can it, it keep breaking over and over again every time we have one of these mass shootings? And I'm, I'm trying to remain optimistic that maybe this will be the time that, that we do something or that people are moved uh, to action. Um, this felt different, and it felt different because the El Paso shooter and his rhetoric so closely mirrored the rhetoric that our president, Donald J. Trump, has been saying. Um, lots of people have been clipping and showing the videos over the past several months where Trump has been calling uh, Mexican um, immigrants and people from Central America coming here seeking asylum invaders and that there's an invasion happening and then you saw the El Paso shooter uh, allegedly say the exact same things and use it as a justification for going into this Walmart and and shooting and killing 22 people there is a conversation that needs to be had around the amount of guns that are in this country the nexus between guns and white nationalism um, the the fact that folks seem to be afraid to call domestic terrorism perpetrated by um, usually white men what it is, which it is, you know, domestic terrorism. Uh, and, and we need to talk about all of that. But I just need to focus my fire on the president for a minute because it is utterly reprehensible that we have a president who traffics in hate speech. And that's the only thing that you could call this. It's hate speech and racism. And I applaud my fellow human beings who happen to be Republicans who have stood up and said as much. And there haven't been that many, but there have been a few. And I know it's not easy to do politically, but you know what? Sometimes things are more important than politics. Sometimes it may be worth you losing your seat to take a stand that in 20, 30 years when the history books are written about this moment in time, you will be on the right side of history. That you will be on the side that stood up and said what our president says from his bully pulpit, from his rallies is wrong, it's racist, and I will not abide by it. And it may cost me my seat, it may cost me support, but it's more important for me to be able to live with myself and to be able to tell my grandchildren that I stood up to this than to get reelected next year. And if you make the political calculus that you would rather remain silent, you would rather 
have a backbone of a jellyfish that you would rather equivocate and twist yourself into pretzels and dance around the topic and say and basically be Ben Sass. If that's what you want to do, enjoy yourself. But you know what? When I meet my end, I'm going to feel pretty confident that I stood on the right side of history and a pox on you and everybody else who doesn't take this moment in time to finally say that enough is enough that we're not going to stand by and let this president demagogue and preach racism from the White House it is disgusting how he has denigrated this office and I'm not going to hold my tongue anymore for any Republican who is going to sit by and let him do it. So, you know, enjoy your reelection, enjoy your, your moment in Congress. Uh, but your, your day of reckoning, it's coming and it's coming soon. And maybe it'll come from your grandchildren who will say, I don't understand grandma, grandpa. Why didn't you, why didn't you stand up to president Trump? And maybe it'll come in some other way if you believe in heaven. I don't know. But I, I just think the time is now where you got to pick a side and I'm going to be on the side of righteousness. So this week, I am so happy to be joined by my colleagues. Can I just say, I love working at CAP because I can say that I'm joined by my colleagues who work at the intersection of everything that's happening right now. Chelsea Parsons is the vice president for gun violence prevention here at CAP. And Rebecca Coakley is the director of the Disability Justice Initiative at CAP. These two issues have been intertwined, usually after every mass shooting, but especially now when you had lots of Republicans and a president talk about mental illness as a response to these uh, mass shootings. So we got to sit down and talk to them and really dive into this topic. And it's, it's not an easy topic to talk about. And good people can can come to this conversation um, with good intent, uh, but come on different sides of the issue. So I, I'm really happy that we're able to talk through uh, not just the complications around talking about uh, mental health issues and gun violence, but also, you know, is there hope on a horizon for something to happen positive to come out of this, to actually implement some common sense gun violence preventions that are wildly supported in this country by average Americans. Um, so it's unfortunate that we had to have this conversation this week, uh, but I'm really glad that we could have it. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Chelsea, Rebecca, thank you guys for joining us on Thinking Cap today. Um, unfortunately, we are here once again talking about mass shootings uh, as we're recording um our president donald j trump is landing in dayton ohio to say god knows what um to his healing words yes because he's so good at the words mm. and i'm sure he will bring nothing but comfort to people who who desperately need it um you know i thought the mayor uh, of Dayton said it best that you know she's going to greet him in her official capacity, um, but that people also have the right to protest um, and say how they feel about how, what his rhetoric is doing. Uh, so before we kind of dive into it, I just want to start like with how are you guys doing? It's hard when 
you work on these issues all the time and it keeps it seems to keep coming back up uh how are you and your teams doing yeah it's um you know i i say to my team a lot and i you know this is this work is hard in all the ways that work can be hard you know Mm -hmm. it is intellectually challenging work and it is politically incredibly difficult work but it is extremely challenging work just as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I probably handle it in a less than healthy way, which is I put up barriers in my brain so that I can do this work. And yeah. and every once in a while, you know, somebody, <laughs> one of one of our colleagues will say, like, how are you doing? And it reminds me, like, <laughs> oh, right. Are, are, you actually, are you really asking right, me that question? Right, exactly. <laughs> so, but, you know, the, the thing is, is that however I'm doing, there's, you know, so many people who are uh, survivors of gun violence from other incidents who every time something like this happens are just re-traumatized over and over again. And so, so you know, I, I appreciate the question, but I also, you know, how I'm doing, I think, is, is among the, the lesser concerns. You know, for this is Rebecca. For us, I think um, here we are again, you yeah. know, uh, something that I I say a lot in in the public engagement work that we do is that we come to movement work because of trauma. Nobody joins a movement because your life is great. Um, And then doing movement work, you acquire additional trauma as a result of that. And every time that there's a a mass shooting, the disability community collectively holds their breath. Mm -hmm. Um, And we literally see people go back in the closet about their disabilities. We'll see people drop off of Facebook groups that are designed for peer support and connection because they're afraid their employers will see that they're a member of that and use that to discriminate against them um, or that their loved ones will, will you know, call the cops on them because, hey, I have, a, I have a friend who's bipolar. I have a friend who has disassociative identity disorder or whatever the case might be. Um, you know, as a, as a person with anxiety who manages a team of, of multiple individuals with multiple types of disabilities, this is really hard. You know, and especially at the nexus of immigration and disability and pitting those communities against each other. Mm -hmm. Um, When we know, you know, folks at the border that are coming here and folks in those camps are folks with disabilities um, and have acquired disabilities as a result of the rampant abuse, both physical and emotional, that they're dealing with. And so it's really hard for the disability community right now to, um, you can't separate your identities in times like this. You know, and I think if there's anything I'm thankful for, and I said this to Chelsea earlier when I saw her walking down the hall, is that one of the things that makes our work here so unique, there is no collaboration elsewhere between the gun violence prevention community and the disability community. And to be able to have space, like safe space, to have some of these really tough conversations mm-hmm. is, I think, what makes me come into work in the morning in times like this. Yeah. So at the time of this recording, and it's like awful that I even have to say that, mm-hmm. You know, there have been 253 mass shootings this year. Uh, we are on day 219. Um, so there always seems to be, after every incident, a renewed call to do something. And you literally heard people shouting that, I believe, at Governor Mike DeWine, do something in Ohio. Uh, Chelsea, do you feel optimistic <laughs> that actually something might get done and and maybe it's not here in DC where nothing seems to get done but at the state level yeah and 
I, I am optimistic. And part of that is because things are getting done. And so one of the um, less useful narratives around the gun violence issue in this country is that um, nothing has changed. Mm -hmm. You know, we you, you hear this a lot. You know, I, I saw this on Twitter um, over the weekend, uh, you know, this this idea that Sandy Hook wasn't the beginning of the of the you know renewed gun violence prevention movement. It was the end when Congress determined that it could not act mm -hmm. after that happened, right? Mm -hmm. And I and I actually think that that is um, not at all true and, and is really an unfair representation of what we've seen over the last six and a half years in this country when it comes to um, the movement uh, to reduce gun violence in this country and actual tangible change that's happened. And so at the state level, um, over the last six years, there have been hundreds of stronger new gun laws that have been enacted. And, and we know that change happens from the ground up. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that that speaks to tremendous progress. Um, and even in this Congress, we have seen signs of change. And so, you know, the House came back um, and one of the top priorities of the new uh, leadership was uh, the Universal Background Checks Bill and a bill to um, address the Charleston loophole. Um, those passed earlier this year on a bipartisan basis. Um, and that's huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, for the House to do that is a really, really big deal. And so, um, you know, I, I, I remain cautiously optimistic, um, yet, not naive about the the possibility of there being some kind of big action mm -hmm. um, at the federal level. Good you putting a little bit of optimism into my heart no, this we morning. Need that. <laughs> you, need that. you have to. We really do. Uh, so, do you think the president obviously has a role to play here? Um, and he has said, I believe, something positive about background checks. Like, do you? <laughs> He did, and then he took it back. Did he really? And then he <laughs> sort of said it again. I, I mean, this is the problem with this president, is that he is so slippery. And, like, frankly, he doesn't, he himself doesn't hold any core values. And mm. so he, you, he doesn't, you, you can't take any of his words at, their face value, right? So so he had that round table after Parkland, for example. And um, I don't know if you remember this, but you know, he not only did he indicate um, uh, support for background checks, but he even said something positive about the assault weapons ban. And the reason that I remember this is because um, Diane Feinstein sat there kind of like giggling. <laughs> she was so excited about about what was happening, right? Um, and then that night the NRA came over. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the as, next day, as they are want to do, as one does. Uh, and then the next day, he completely reversed course. Yeah. And so, you know, we had the president yesterday morning tweeting about background checks, but then tying it to immigration reform, which is completely revolting. Then he had his his press conference um, where he said just a number of horrendous things, but in addition to it, you know, indicated some support for extreme risk protection order legislation, um, but. You know, you can't you can't really pin him down. I, I mean, I think that um, at this point, nobody should be looking to this president for mm -hmm. any kind of moral or substantive leadership on any issue, but well, on this issue in particular. That's fair. Um, I want to touch on some of the awful things that he said, and it goes back to Rebecca. Some of what we were talking about that happens after mass shootings when your community starts holding their breath uh and he you know he said he talked about mental illness you heard other republicans talking about mental illness um you know especially as it relates to el paso as white nationalism and racism is not a mental illness i feel like it's ridiculous i need to say that um 
and I, I think you heard this also happening after Gilroy, um, California, which was not that just a couple of days ago. And it, it seems like people have already forgotten about that mass shooting as well. Uh, so you talked about sort of the the ramifications on people feeling that they had to go back in the closet and they start worrying about their employment and all of that. Like, what what does it do to the policy conversation around this, right? Because I think there can be people of good conscience and faith on this topic who don't exactly know what to believe, but I, I know the president's definitely not one of those people. Well, I think one of the, one of the big challenges is this conversation around mental health. Um, we know that we don't have a robust, well-funded, high-quality mental health system in this country. We know it for the for the average Joe who sees a therapist once a week or once a month. Um, as mu- and that it's as true for them as it is for folks who have really significant, serious mental illness and require more intensive treatment. Um, and it's one of those things that we talk about all the time, you know. And I, and I'm cautiously optimistic in all of the conversations around Medicare for all. Um, where there's the bullet point there around mental health, hoping that we see some more text to that because it really is something that's crucially needed. You know, it's really easy to continue to say, well, we'll just lock those people up. Um, Where we know that there are roughly 51 million people with a diagnosed mental illness in this country. Um, We also know that locking people up in traditional warehouse style institutions doesn't work. Um, they still exist today. The president was uh, behaving in such a way like, we're going to bring them back. They're, they still exist. And actually, Texas has some of the most harmful ones in the country where there are repeated investigations wow. about violence, abuse, rape, mistreatment, et cetera, uh, of people in those institutions. And these are people with civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a, have a significant fear, um, given the, the president's use of rhetoric, that should we see a return to in to you know an actual president endorsement of involuntary commitment, who is going to be committed? It's going to be disproportionately people of color, disproportionately women, disproportionately immigrants, people who speak out against the president. Um, I think it's more than reasonable to say that, um, you know. And this is just one of a, a continued theme. I mean, we've seen. States like Florida, where they have a requirement for students who are in K through 12 public schools before they go back to school this year, they have to legally disclose whether or not they've sought uh, mental health treatment over the last year and be put on a state registry. How, how is that legal? That's a great question. <laughs> and I think what you that is an overcorrection to what happened in Parkland. Yeah, right, right. And and we've seen mm-hmm. it now spreading to South Carolina and Georgia as well. And let's be honest, we know when we start building registrations of people, it's usually not a good thing. No, never in history. I mean, short of Santa's list, nobody wins. (laughs) And I think one of the things that I think is really challenging um, in in this whole conversation is that I I think that there are incredibly well-meaning people who struggle to understand how a person could commit this kind of act of violence yes. mm-hmm. if not for a mental illness, right? right? Like there's, I think that it comes from this effort to try to, to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. And the easiest way to make sense of it is to try to blame it on something like mental illness because then you can control. kind of get yourself out of it, right? right. And so I think that that's where a lot of this comes from. And until very recently, um, there there hasn't been enough 
pushback mm -hmm. from uh, folks in the gun violence prevention space um, on that on that narrative and to say, you know, we are not going to um, we are not going to make rhetorical points against the president um, on the backs of uh, individuals with mental illness. And, and we're not going to take cheap shots. Um, right at the expense of that community. Right, and I, I think sometimes, you're right, there are well many people who have, who grapple with this, but I, it also goes back to, I think, um, not wanting to understand our history yeah. and like how this country was formed on the backs of violence and racism and uh, that were codified in like our institutions. So I was participating in an interesting conversation with a group of friends who all happen to be African-American and they were like, uh, this is like evil exists, like pure pure evil exists. And you don't need to, you know, scapegoat it on a, a community or say it's about mental illness. It's like racism and, and evil and violence is as unfortunately as American as apple pie. Mm -hmm. and people's lack of being able to grapple with that and, and understand it, I think, can lead you down to these conversations. Well, and colleagues on our team actually developed a timeline around mental health and communities of color and public policy. And you can actually look back, um, I, I wanna give credit to Valerie Novak and Aza Altidaifi for this brilliant uh, presentation that they've done recently, talking about going back to the, the formal diagnosis of runaway slave syndrome or drapedomania which was a psychological diagnosis wow. used to round up runaway slaves. And so like the, the deep-seated, long historical connection between racism and ableism, and in this case, xenophobia and everything else that's tied into this current administration, sort of like spin the wheel and pick an ism, um, you can't deny that. And you can't unpack it with just one thread. You have to untie the whole knot. Yeah. So, Looking forward about what can be done, let's put all of our optimistic hats back on. Um, you know, what are, what do you see as the biggest gaps in our gun laws that need to be closed that can make a real difference? So how much time do we have? We don't have forever. Okay, great. So here's the thing. Uh, here's the thing. Our gun laws are so bad. How bad how are bad they? How bad are they? They're so bad. Uh, there is, there's so much work to do. And that is part of... You guys, that is part of what <laughs> is challenging about this work. And that's part of why a lot of people get just feel very defeated by it, right? Mm -hmm. So, however, there are a few kind of key things that I really encourage um, people to be focused on. Um, you know, the first one is uh, a ban on assault weapons and high capacity magazines. Mm -hmm. um, these guns are not appropriate for civilian communities. They're just not. Um, we had a federal assault weapons ban for 10 years. Uh, it was enacted as part of the crime bill in 1994. It, when it was enacted, it had a sunset provision in it. So it was allowed to expire. Um, and since that time, the gun industry has uh, re-engaged with renewed fervor to pump out millions and millions of these guns every year. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's at the top of the list is that we really need to um, impose some restrictions on these kinds of firearms. Um, you know, the second thing is we still don't have background checks for every gun sale. Um, we can go to my home state of Virginia. Um, I can sell you a gun uh, out of the trunk of my car and I don't need to take your ID. I don't need to do any paperwork. Um, that's a completely legal transaction. That 
facilitates uh, illegal gun trafficking, and it is a legal workaround to the other laws that we have in place that are designed to prevent people um, from being able to buy guns. So, so that's an extremely big problem. Um, we also have um, a dynamic in place right now where we don't have even close to sufficient research um, about the causes of gun violence in this country um, and what are the most effective interventions to have an impact on reducing it. And so this year in the House, um, uh, in the appropriations bill, uh, the House um, gave $50 million to the CDC and the NIH to be able to finally conduct research into gun violence. Again, another really big deal and really important. So we're not policy making with a mm -hmm. blindfold on. Mm -hmm. um, so those are just like three real quick ones. There are probably a dozen more. Um, one more I'll highlight is that um, we need to repeal the federal law that gives the gun industry almost absolute immunity from uh, civil lawsuits. Um, they are the only consumer product industry in the country that just has blanket immunity from from civil litigation. Which is incredible. Oh, yeah. and, and obviously they got that done because they, you know, buy off tons of politicians, I assume. But like, I, do people understand that? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. And I actually think that's one of the other key challenges that we have in this policy space is that um, there's just a baseline lack of understanding among kind of the general public about how bad our gun laws are. Mm -hmm. um, you know, even even something like background checks, I think now because we've been talking about it so much, people get it. Um, but even, you know, a year or two ago, um, people didn't understand. I, my husband said to me after I had been doing this work for like five years, Wait, you mean there's no license that you need to get a gun? And I was like, <laughs> thanks for paying attention. Have Where have we been? <laughs> but so I mean, so like, there's just a, a really um, there's a big gap in I think education and understanding of of what our gun policy yeah. is. And Rebecca, if you could, you know, wave a magic wand, um, what is the conversation you would like to be having right now when it comes to mental illness, mental health, and guns? It's this conversation times everyone who needs to be at the table, really. Um, and it really is a, a conversation that for so long hasn't been had by either community. You know, I think the other thing, and we this is the talk, this talking point is so, I almost want to say it's like, um, it's calcified. Uh, you know, we know the data that tells us that people with disabilities are more likely to be victims of gun violence than perpetrators. Right. And at the same time, by and large, people with disabilities aren't believed when we tell people that our lives are being threatened. So for example, every year we have an event in the spring called Disability Day of Mourning, where we recognize the hundreds of, of, or thousands, depending on the year, of disabled people who have been killed by a loved one um, or a caregiver. And it's one of those things that everybody's like, well, wait, you guys do something, like that happens? And if you read the papers regularly, you'll see like, this parent, it was so hard raising a disabled kid that, you know, they committed murder-suicide. Or they, they, that child is now at rest. No, you killed that child. Wow. Um, and there really is no easy, one of the conversations we've had with a lot of folks that are talking about these ERPOs and these gun violence restraining orders is how do we make sure that there are mechanisms in place so if you're a disabled person and you feel unsafe in your household, mm -hmm. you can have your parents or your siblings or your caregivers' guns removed because you question your own safety. And when the first time I brought that up to those folks, they were like, wait, what are you talking about? Like, we're talking about keeping guns away from your folks. And I was like, yeah, but we're not killing you guys. Y'all are killing us. Um, and really taking the time to, to say that this is a tough conversation. I mean, it's just like the conversation around abortion. 
um, with the reproductive rights movement and the mm-hmm. disability community. Um, we traditionally have been always treated as a football or a prop, and we're not your prop. We're your sister, we're your teacher, we're your boss, we're your friend. And we deserve a seat at the conversation, a seat at the table for the conversation that directly impacts our lives. And traditionally, we haven't been there. And I'm thrilled that through the work that we're doing here, we're able to start having that conversation and think about how do we facilitate it on a bigger scale. So for folks who are listening who want to get more information in both of the areas that you cover, what's the easiest way for them to is it just go to AmericanProgress.org? AmericanProgress.org. <laughs> AmericanProgress.org. So many useful resources. Yes, Absolutely. and probably follow you both on Twitter. Give out your handles. Go ahead. Chelsea C. Parsons. Rebecca Coakley. And y'all know me, but you follow me for my cursing. <laughs> um, we we typically like to end these um, interviews asking our guests, like you know, what they like to do in their spare time. I usually like to prod people about their trash TV watching. Mm-hmm. I feel like this week is a good time to talk about how do you disconnect to the extent that you can to you know recharge, whether that's you know going for a walk, reading a book, watching Bachelor in Paradise, whatever it might be. What are you guys mm-hmm. doing to self-care? I am a Bravo reality TV devotee. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Lordy. So I am currently living for Below Deck. I uh, really need to start watching uh, this, apparently. You do. You do. <laughs> and then I also, um, I also last week happened to catch um, the Hunger Games uh, marathon. And so now I'm rereading those books. Oh. Yes, okay. which I uh, highly recommend. So... I'm a little person. I don't need to do reality shows because I live in y'all's world. Um, and my ex-best friend produces all the little shows. Oh. oh. Yeah. Um, that being said, um, I build Lego Star Wars ships. I build Lego sets. Really? And so, yeah, Banga and Econ and I talk about this all the time. And I, like, will sit and, like, I have easily 30 sets at home and another like 20 in storage and like I build like the pirate ships like I have all the Star Wars ships like that's how I'm not crafty my mom was like super crafty she could knit crochet needlepoint I can't even like sew a hem which is really bad for a little person someone's going to come and take my dwarf card but um But, like, giving me something with, like, a finite beginning and an end where I can actually see it grow and build. But I'm also Lord Business, so I don't let my kids... Like, I was just going to ask, are your kids allowed business. to touch it? No, they cannot touch my Lego. <laughs> and people come in the house and assume it's Patrick's. Mm. And they're like, Patrick, look at your Legos. He's like, those aren't mine, and I'm not allowed to touch them. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you have taught him well. Yes. So my neighbor, she also builds, like, elaborate Lego sets that nobody is allowed to touch. And she built one that was a replica of our little Main Street. Oh, that's and lovely. I would argue that that is extremely crafty. Oh, yeah. You're extremely crafty. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Rebecca Chelsea, thank you guys so much for joining us this week. Thank you. Thank you. Thinking Cap is produced and edited by Kyle Epstein. He also wrote our theme music. Chris Ford is our researcher. And Matt Ingram made our logo. Listen and subscribe to Thinking Cap on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.